All right, well, the time has come. We're coming to a little season of conclusions, finishing tonight this series on biblical leadership, finishing next Sunday morning, Lord willing, series through the book of James, and uh, come a long way. And hopefully this study on biblical leadership has provided, uh, proved to be helpful for you and provided you some training. For those of you who are already in a form of church leadership, I hope these lessons have just reminded you that God cares first and foremost about who you are before he cares about what you do. And hopefully we've reinforced the priorities of biblical leadership for you. And for those aspiring to church leadership, I would hope you would implement these lessons in your lives that from, from ground zero, from the get-go, you can aspire toward a biblical model of leadership as we've just hopefully enforced all the biblical priorities in leadership in the church. Well, we could go on with you know more recap from all we've covered and all these lessons, but that's not really our goal tonight, nor well, do we have time for it trying to finish up really the second part to this final lesson. It's lesson 16, how to lead a small group. We're into the, well, more than the home stretch. This is the last one. But these series of how-tos, we began with the biblical foundation for leadership and covered what the Bible really says about leadership. And now in this, these final series of lessons, getting to some of the practicals, the how-to, how to teach, how to counsel. And we want to finish with this one, how to lead a small group. It's a fitting ending for us because that's something we're trying to do, a place we're trying to go to train up and raise up small group leaders in the church is one of really the motivating factors behind me teaching this whole series, just provide some of that you know, corporate teaching and training toward that end. And we, we've laid the foundation biblically for the preparation and practice of leadership, and it's only fitting to end with this, kind of the practicals of, well, how do you lead a small group? How do you implement the small group ministry and then lead it? even day to day. Small groups represent personal discipleship. You know, the elder pastor is called to shepherd and oversee the church at large. That's why one of the terms for them is overseer, largely the the bigger picture. He's going to deal with corporate discipleship, but personal discipleship has a real benefit to the church. And last week we made the case for that, the value of personal discipleship in addition. From accountability to service to encouragement to discussion to application. Many aspects of the Christian walk really flourish under personal discipleship. In our primary gatherings on Sunday morning, that's a form of corporate discipleship, and that's needed in the church. The corporate preaching of the word and prayer and the worship of God's people are essential in our walks. We know that and in our worship. But the time comes to, you know, when it, when it comes to living out all that we do learn, especially concerning all the one another aspects of the Christian life, Small groups provide such a a valuable setting for them. Anyway, hopefully you learned from last week the value and the benefits of small groups as a supplement to the church. We covered the activities of small groups being driven to uh, by the glory of God and the Christ-likeness of his people. Our small groups should have a distinct flavor. They're not just trying to create, you know, social groups or just little gatherings, but a Christ-centeredness should be prominent that we're gathering in a small personal setting for the sake of knowing Christ and serving him, following him, and worshiping him. And these ambitions are going to guide how we use our time. And speaking of which, we spent a large portion of what we covered last week on the activities of a small group. We talked about the goals and the, the Christ-centeredness. This is just a means of pursuing Christ along with one another. And if, if that pursuit of Christ and presenting one another complete in Christ, if that's the goal... That, it's going to dictate what we do. We're not just going to play games for 90 minutes, but 
the activities will be you know, well-defined. So we found there are three main activities, Bible study, accountability, and prayer. These are naturally going to flow into three secondary activities, uh, fellowship, service, and evangelism. And we spent a lot of time last week covering that. You can get that message if you weren't here. But hopefully that gives you a little taste of what small groups are about, how they should be using their time. We want to come back today, finish, and round out this discussion by adding a few other issues relating to small groups. We covered small group goals, small group activities, and we want to carry on now with a few of these the third one being small group principles. There's further aspects of teaching we can add to help you understand what small groups are, how they function, what they should be about. So here's some small group principles. And by this, we just want to point out a handful of key principles to keep in mind, mainly to help you keep a small group on track. It's very easy for small gatherings to get carried away, go off course, especially when it comes to our core values and our purposes for even meeting. And these principles will hopefully keep you and your small group on course. So just some some key principles for small groups in and of themselves. First, keep the group small. Keep the group small. It should be common sense, especially given what we learned last week. But we get enough corporate discipleship at the church. We're not trying to create another large group meeting. The whole goal is to keep these groups small, to focus on that personal discipleship. But groups can quickly grow out of hand. If you have open small groups or fellowship groups or people, anyone can join any time or if you're inviting people at will, they quickly grow to medium groups and then eventually large groups. And perhaps one group is a especially skilled or engaging teacher or one group is more fun, might attract more people. It's like it's open enrollment. And pretty soon you've got a group of 25 plus people. It's not a small group anymore. It's just another medium, large group meeting of the church. And it, it kind of defeats the purpose. Not to saying that's bad, but you get what I'm saying. Either you're going to have a small group or you're not. And if you're going to have it, well, then we're going to want to keep these small. And typically this problem is managed by the elder or pastor who's overseeing the small group ministry. The church pastors should work closely with the small group leaders to help balance the group. Uh, the groups out, incorporate some new members, even start new groups to accommodate the growth instead of just saying, well, now you guys have 13 people and live with it. No, it's just, you know, start a new group or expand. It's a good problem to have, but uh, we want to keep the groups relatively small. Secondly, keep the group regular. There's some principles to keep your groups on track, and they should be kind of evident to you, I hope, but worth talking about. Keep the group regular. Now, when, when you are, not really you from the leader's perspective, but when the members of your small group are irregular, not seemingly fully committed, they maybe come and go, they miss, they suffer and the group suffers. Now, ways, ways you suffer when you're absent, this would apply to church, but we're really talking about a small group setting. Think about the Bible study time. You're forsaking a valuable opportunity to renew your mind by the study of God's word. It's like you're skipping a meal. You're skipping a spiritual meal when you miss. When it comes to accountability, you're closing a little window into your life through which brothers and sisters are seeking to help you run the race. If you live isolated for too long, you're going to find it doesn't take much to stray. Prayer time. When you're, when you're flaky, you're, you're losing out on a time for you to share your requests and to gather the requests of others and then to, to labor over those in prayer. You're just you're skipping out on that. In Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, important passage, it says, Let us hold fast 
the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We may actually look at that passage in the following Sunday, but if you can remember, it's so corporate. Let, it's, you know, it's third person plural. Let us hold our confession together. As I mentioned this morning, church life, it's not a solo sport. This, we're called to engage in this race together. And so when you are absent or a member is absent, you find that they suffer. They're missing out on all the value of the small group that we covered. But the group is suffering too. The others are missing out and suffering because that member is absent. Church is not just about you. It's about the, group, the growth and the edification of the whole body, which remember is being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. And when one member is just off, separate, doing their own thing, absent, flaky, really others suffer. Mutual interdependence. That's what Hebrews 10 is, is about in, in the life of the church. It's a mutual interdependence. Your hand is really useful. You can do a lot with your hand, but it's, it's worthless without an elbow. If your elbow just goes missing or detaches and you lose your elbow, your hand now becomes largely worthless. Right? Mutual interdependence and running the race, holding the confession together, pursuing love and good deeds together, encouraging one another day after day. You can't do that alone. And when people are habitually absent, you know, the group is missing your voice, your input, your encouragement. Where are you to encourage them? Where are you to, to pray for them? Where are you to reprove them? You, know, you, you can't do these one another's that the small groups are all about. If you're absent, if you're not there, you have to be present. And so keeping the group regular, it, it, that's so that the person doesn't suffer and the group doesn't suffer. And you find that an attitude of flakiness will kill a small group. It diminishes the Bible study discussion time. It reduces the depth of the accountability time. It makes trivial the prayer time. It communicates no one's really taking this discipleship that seriously. And it crushes the spirits of those who do want to take it seriously. They, they, they want it. They want that active accountability, that life on life every week. Uh, but they feel like no one really takes it that seriously. Far better to graciously excuse those who are habitually absent or flaky and create groups where you know, all the members, they're regular, they're committed, they're all in. And just given everything we've studied about what these groups are about, they are not going to, th- to thrive or survive without participation. And so keep the groups regular. It's an important principle to just help shepherd and manage your people to keep them regular or have them uh, have a, a season off to evaluate their priorities, their schedule, and hopefully come back when they're ready to be regular. And that really defeats the whole purpose of what we're trying to accomplish. Third, keep the group honest. Hand in hand with regular participation comes honesty. And as we learned with accountability being such a big factor in these small groups, relationships of trust need to be formed. But again, those don't form when people are absent or flaky. You're not going to get that depth of accountability. Now, speaking of accountability, its value will be directly related to the group's honesty with one another. If group members are not honest with one another, then they're not going to be able to hold one another accountable, not in a really meaningful sense. This can be challenging, especially when you have some people who are closed off, that they never really share their struggles. 
their prayer requests. Maybe I'll just focus on someone else. Or if they ever do finally talk, it's something generic. Or maybe I just pray for just, you know, wisdom or something. Just always generic. Always just really on the surface. It's like they're giving the impression that they face no real temptation or sin struggles in life. They're, they're pretty much fine all the time. We know that's not the case. They're merely just walled off. And so we wonder, is that person really benefiting from like the charade? And is the group benefiting from having someone who's just playing games and not really communi- communi- uh, committing to the accountability time? Look, building honesty takes time, of course. Uh, mutual convincing has to take place where you know, you're convinced that these people they, they love me, they care about me, they, they just have my Christ-likeness in mind, and I need to convince them the same, that I'm not going like, to take this and gossip, or you know, we're just trying to help one another pursue Christ. That's all that this is about. That, that convincing has to take place. A convincing of the value of accountability itself. People need to see it as a useful tool in the arsenal against sin, and how God uses the mutual encouragement and reproof and prayer of your fellow brothers and sisters as, as a way to help you run the race. So that convincing takes time that they realize that this is, this is valuable. We should be doing this, and I want to participate. But for you as the leader, you want to be fostering this and encouraging that. And try and lead your group to that place of honesty. And you can do that by example, by being honest and forthright about some of your own struggles. And also challenge people from time to time, but be patient because this does come with time. So, no need to be rushed. We just want to make sure that, look, a year in, you've had a small group for a year, that it's not just still a, a plain old superficial group where everything is always fine and they just want to talk about sports and the weather and everything's good. You know, we, we know life is real. There's troubles, trials, affliction, temptation, sin. And the whole purpose of gathering for personal discipleship is to encourage one another day by day so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that doesn't exist without honesty with yourself, with a trusted group for accountability. That's what we're talking about. Number four, keep the group focused. A few more principles here. Keep the group focused. I mean, many distractions in small groups and the social elements can quickly overtake a group. We want our groups to be socially involved. But as leaders, we have to remind ourselves of the, the group's goals and intentions that we, we have a mission to present every person complete in Christ, mature in Christ, built up into the image of Christ. And so if you ever see the focus of the Bible study time or accountability time or prayer time or fellowship time veer away from this focus, well, you need to make a course correction. It's up to the leaders to manage and steer the direction and the focus of the small group and keep it pointed in true north at all times. And keep the group focused on Christ and the mission of promoting Christ-likeness in one another. It's what it's all about. And so it's worthwhile to, to check. Has your group become just a social club and nothing else? Have you lost your focus? If so, well, get it back. And lastly, number five, a fifth. Just I know these are basic, but like I said, needed reminders. And for some of you, it might be new. And keep the group shepherded. Some basic principles for leading a, a small group. Keep the group shepherded. You know, some teach that small groups don't need leaders. You don't really need a leader. They'll do just fine without leaders. We just mutual, you know, fellowship and whatnot. But that's really a myth. Even if the group has no official leader, it has a leader. 
There's no such thing as a group without leaders. In, in any power vacuum, even if no one carries the title, one person's probably going to have a strong personality and they will step in and assert their will for better or for worse. Most people are like sheep. They will follow the strong voice. And so it's just better to actively provide godly leaders to begin with and not leave it up to someone to just step in. And that's our aim. And so accordingly, keep the group shepherded. Stay on top of yourself. Make sure you're doing your job. Again, this is from the leadership perspective, that you're not getting carried away or distracted. Evaluate yourself often. Are you shepherding these people? Do you see them as there to to serve you, or are you there to serve them? You know, everything we learn in these many lessons that we've gone through about being a sacrificial servant, about laying down your life for the sheep. If you're a small group leader, this is your chance to put all that into action. And so make sure you're doing this. So watch over your little flock. Dangers abound. They need a biblical and godly under-shepherd. So to be that person and watch over yourself and your teaching. It's a key verse in 1 Timothy 4, 15 through 16. You know the pastoral epistles, so much about shepherding. Listen to this, 1 Timothy 4, 15 or 16, what Paul says to Timothy about his his ministry. He says, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. He says, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Paul just knows God's ordained plan to use shepherds in the salvation and sanctification of his people. And so he says, pay close attention to yourself, your example, and your teaching. That's God's means of ensuring that the sheep under you will be sound as well. And so keep the group shepherded, evaluate yourself, stay on top of yourself as that leader to be the biblical shepherd we've studied all throughout. Now, I mentioned that they need a shepherd. They need an under-shepherd because dangers abound. And it's worth talking now about small group dangers. So let's move to a new little subtopic here. Still talking about implementing small groups. But to make you aware of now some of the dangers that are inherent to small groups. They just seem to come up in these small group settings. So let's just identify some that you are aware. you You yourself can identify and then resolve them. So some small group dangers. First, seclusion. It's going to be top of the list. Seclusion. You can put here our isolation. It's also easy for small groups to become secluded, isolated little cliques within the church. And anyone who has any experience with the small group ministry in the church knows, yeah, it really doesn't take long for them to devolve into little tribes or cliques or groups that are very isolationist. The people in a small group can, you know, they run together and they, for most, you know, for all intents and purposes, they stop interacting with the church at large. And that's a problem. And to a degree, small group members should draw closer to one another. Like that, that's kind of the point. You can only have so many personal relationships and the small group, we, we want them to, to really develop deep bonds of friendship with these people. That's good. That's appropriate. But small group members need to understand that the small groups, they're a supplement to the local church, not a replacement. They're not meant to become your new church body. Like that's your real church, the church within a church. No, 
Again, we're not saying it's wrong to have deep relationships with some in the church. You can only have so many deep, meaningful relationships. But we're saying that small group relationships should never lead to the neglect of the local church uh, at large. Small groups are not to be isolated and secluded like they're their own little independent community. Like the 12 tribes of Israel. They had their own distinction, but they were supposed to come together as one people, one nation. A broader unity was to keep them together, and we need that in the church, in the local church as well. But as you know, in Israel's history, they they typically reverted to tribalism, where it's our tribe versus your tribe, and it led to division, and a ton of problems accompanied that. Typically, people divide along superficial lines anyway. Christ's body is meant to be a unified whole, both in the local church and really the church universal, not a series of islands. And so we need to promote wider participation and inclusion in the local church, not separation. So just be aware as a leader that you and your group and the people are not just becoming isolated from the local body, but are are mixing with people and serving one another, just part of the local body life as much as possible. And furthermore, such isolation, it's really the the bedfellow to division. And that's the second danger in small groups, division. After seclusion occurs, division is not far behind, typically. This is a symptom of spiritual pride where small groups become isolated and then develop an us versus them mentality. They start to view themselves or their group as maybe better or superior to the other groups, or even the church at large. No one prays like they do. No one really studies the Bible like they do or practices accountability like they do. No one one seems to be as spiritual as them. Look, it, it may be possible that their group is experiencing accelerated growth in the Lord. In fact, I hope that's the case, that that's what we want to see in small groups. They're really engaging the one another's. They should be growing. That needs to be paired and tempered with humility. If not, pride enters in. It will lead some to get puffed up and very quickly thumb their nose at those less spiritual Christians. I've seen this happen many times before. Few things can be so hazardous to a local church than a small group of prideful young men who know just enough theology to be dangerous, and they believe they have everything figured out, that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge will die with them. Like, watch out. Because a little division is about to occur. And division also occurs in the body or in these groups when the groups start getting competitive. I, I hate seeing competitive small groups. But this can be dri- driven by the leaders. It's when a leader's ego gets involved. You know, the success of their small group becomes a badge of honor. You can imagine that. You know, who has the biggest group or the funnest group? the most active group. We do the most things on Saturdays or the smartest group, the most theological group. Now, a competition forms, that just further divides the groups against one another. And this type of division, it's really nonsense. It, it makes no sense and it has no place in the church. Not quite the same, but very similar. Paul rebuked these little divisions. Weren't small group, maybe it was related to small groups as more along uh, leadership lines. But in 1 Corinthians 1, people were dividing along these personalities. And you get that same atmosphere of cliques or divisions forming in the church that have no place. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 13. It says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of 
our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And he keeps going. But you recall that passage. He calls them out for these trivial divisions along personalities. And small groups can become like that. They're like, this is, I'm of that person. I'm of this group. And they're, that's my tribe. And it's, it's such nonsense. We want to guard against, you know, first that seclusion. And then how quickly it turns into division from the body. And we want the church and the small groups to promote the unity of the whole and the fellowship of the saints. So anyway, it's just a danger to be aware of. Small group leaders need to actively remind their people that you know, these groups are extensions of the local church, that we're part of a larger body. There should be no sense of one-upmanship, no sense of competition, no sense of exclusion. But you lead and show them a spirit of humility should pervade these groups. And like I said, I, I hope those in the small group experience accelerated growth. But that's, if that's the case, that's, that's by God's grace and God's power, not because you're special. Who are you to boast? We've learned in James, though, we're, we're never to disparage, slander, or think poorly of our fellow brethren. God has a lot to each one a measure of faith. And so even if your group might be growing faster than others and really taking off, hey, praise the Lord for that. And instead of judging or disparaging your fellow brethren, you go pull them up. You go take them with you. You go minister to them that they would grow as well instead of just, you know, shutting them out and going to your corner. As a small group leader, if you see your group start to devalue the ongoings of the local church and just, just care about themselves and about the group only, that those seeds of division are forming, you have to, you know, cut those off right away and just help them integrate into the local body. This is not a replacement, but a, a supplement to church life. The third danger, social clubs, that they just, devolve into a social club. You know, community is a big buzzword today. Everyone wants community. And the church is to be all about community. And look, that's not unbiblical. Christ died to redeem and unite a community centered around him. And that's a good thing. And community with Christ will have horizontal implications where now we are placed in community, in relationship with all the other people who know and serve Christ. We're united to Christ, therefore we're united to the church. So as we've argued, you know, fellowship should be a big deal. It should play a prominent part in these small groups. Living life together under Christ should be prioritized, but as you can probably imagine, some small groups, they, they keep the community side of things, but they kind of drop that whole, you know, under Christ side of things. Like they're, they're just a community and they lose their distinctive Christian flavor. They become just a social club. Like we're, we're used to be a Christian small group. Now we're just kind of a small group. And social clubs aren't wrong. People are, are social and they like to belong. And so to, to gather with others who share a common interest, that's fine. You want to join a sports club or a game club or a sewing club or a gym club, go right ahead. We feel that need to connect and that's fine. But that's not the mission of the church. So for our small groups, our fellowships, that's, that's not our goal. 
we have the promotion of Christ-likeness at its core, and that needs to be just the constant truth with which we always align our groups. And remember, that's, we know that's not to the exclusion of fellowship. It's, it's a both-and, but we want to make sure it's, it's not an either-or. Like either we're you know, a Christian group or we're a social group. We can have both. Socializing is encouraged, but never at the expense of pursuing Christ, studying his word, praising him, following him. That's the point we're making. We, we don't want these to devolve just to little, you know, groups of friends that hang out on Friday night. If you want to do that, have fun. Hang out with your friends. Have your little group that you always meet with. But for the church's small groups, you seem to keep the main things as the main things. And for, for groups to really devolve, it really requires a failure in leadership. So don't fail. Right? Don't let your group get out of hand and turn into just a game night but nothing more. And we know that our small groups are something more. And so keep the, like I said, the main things, the main thing. One more here, one more small group danger to be aware of that you can hopefully do something about or even keep it from getting to that point. Number four, difficult personalities. Difficult personalities. Small groups are made up of people, each with their own personality And some personality types can present a unique challenge for the life and dynamic of the small group. And when I say personality, I'm not just saying like that's a a subjective thing. Really, a root of pride is behind these. But when I say personality, it's just knowing some of the identifying marks of a particular type of person uh, who may be a detriment to the small group and often are. So let's talk about some of these challenging or difficult personalities. First, the onlooker. The onlooker. And some people simply refuse to get involved. They offer little to no personal participation in the group. They're quiet. They're introverted. And look, to to a large degree, we want to be very patient with such people because for some, it's, it's very difficult to speak in public, even if there's only three other people present. We have mountains of grace and patience to show to people that they're trying, but it's just hard. That's fine. That's not a problem. We're talking about the person who, like, they don't even care anymore. They're not trying. You wonder, like, why are they even here? Why are they showing up? That They just don't care about others. Look, some need time to build trust, open up for the sake of mutual encouragement and prayer. But sometimes it becomes clear that a person, they're just unwilling to get involved. And during Bible study, they're unwilling to discuss. They're unwilling to answer questions. During prayer and accountability time, they're unwilling to participate, to pray for others, to offer their own prayer requests. They don't want to engage in this whole process. And look, that's, well, I don't want to say that's fine. I don't think that's fine, but you don't have to be in the small group. You can just, look, grow, go to the, the church you know, your Sunday morning, your Sunday night, you partake in the corporate meetings and trust the Lord to grow your heart that you care more about, you know, personal relationship with others in the church. But the problem with you know, having such a person in a small group is they can you know, greatly discourage the others from openness, honesty, and involvement. You know, in these small groups, we're trying to actively promote trust and honesty for the sake of accountability. But the, on, the onlooker, Again, we're talking about kind of the the rebellious onlooker. They are really working directly against the whole agenda here. We're trying to promote Christ-likeness. It it requires, right, honesty, involvement, participation. They're like doing the exact opposite. They're promoting the opposite. That's a problem. 
And every week, their lack of investment and just care is like throwing a wet blanket on the fire of the group. It's just a, kind of a buzzkill. And look, you want to deal very patiently, very graciously, and sensitively, and slowly with such people. But some, it might come to the point where they just need to be excused for a season. Just to, like, take a time out from these small groups. You need to really count the cost. Consider if you really want to be personally involved. Participate in the corporate gatherings of the church. And Lord willing, you, know, you can still work with them on the side that they would grow. To come to the point to see the value and then engage in the value of the small group. But if they're unwilling, it's best to have that person leave the small group. The second difficult personality would be the monopolizer. The monopolizer. And simply put, the monopolizer is just the opposite of the onlooker, meaning they, they don't stop talking. They just don't stop talking. And there's an area of balance because we encourage talking. We want involvement and discussion and accountability and prayer, right? So don't get me wrong. I trust you know what I mean here. There are limits. And I think most people have a built-in sense of social awareness where they know it's time to talk. Oh, no, now it's time to listen. I shouldn't talk right now. It's time to listen to others who are talking. But I think we all know there's a few people that they just don't have that built-in awareness. And they just talk, and they will bulldoze you while you're talking because something came to their mind, and they have to get it out. That can present a challenge in a small group. You know, during Bible study discussion, the person can quickly take over, and they become the de facto teacher, and they just go on and on. Or they can take the group down to necessary rabbit trails. You have a, a a simple question, you're looking for, you know, a 30-second answer, they give you a five-minute answer. It really tests the limits of the patience and the attention span of the others. And furthermore, when one person just dominates the time, it very quickly squelches the voices of everyone else. We're like, that they become insecure. They don't want to speak up because this, this huge dominant personality is just running over everybody and not letting anyone else talk or, or get a word in. The same goes for the prayer and accountability time. There are some time constraints in a small group. And so if one person takes 30 minutes to to share all their personal requests, they're not really, and maybe you only have 30 minutes total allotted for the time. You see how they're not really showing consideration for others and showing any value to the the prayer requests and accountability time for others. And look, again, I think we're reasonable, right? We know like in a given week, someone might be really struggling. And so, you know what? Maybe we need to this week give all 30 minutes to that person because they're going through a lot. We need to minister to that person. Amen. That's a great thing. You know, that's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about the person who habitually, it's kind of always about them, all about them. And they go on and on because of of that. It's typically a latent spiritual pride that's behind all this. But it can be a real distraction and it can quickly exasperate the group. This, this is best just dealt with alone, again, in love with heaps of patience and grace because we're all, we're all a little messed up anyway, right? We all have our issues. But just you're going to have a gracious, patient talk with this person. You've you got to shepherd them too and explain to them that you know, you're, they're monopolizing the time and just challenge them to practice the skill of listening, to, to really come to value what other people are saying, give them a chance to talk, listen to their requests, just genuinely get invested and involved in their lives, and show consideration that they would give others that chance to talk and grow. You know, it can be challenging. Like I said, these are challenging, but, you know, if you're the leader, this is on your plate. This is on you to shepherd these people that the group is working well together. 
And so it's going to be on you to have that conversation, again, alone in love to help shepherd that person too. Something to be aware of, though. A third difficult personality would be the fighter. The fighter. And we could probably make this a long list, but we're not going to just for the sake of time. I think this will be enough. Thirdly, the fighter. And here we're just talking about the contentious person. Really, just for the sake of being contentious. And these are by far the most dangerous person to have in the small group or even just the church. I'm talking here about the, I should clarify, this is not the person with lots of questions. They're just, they're just trying to get to the bottom of it. Hey, praise God for that. I'll answer your every question. We'll stay here all night. Let's do it. But we're talking about the person who is prideful, self-willed, arrogant. They're just picking theological fights. They're just wrangling about words. Again, these all, they all come back to pride. Some spiritual pride has gotten in. They just want to maybe prove someone else wrong, prove themselves right. Like I said, we love to discuss the truth and, and even have, you know, in a sense, a type of debate when it's accompanied by a spirit of love and humility and honesty, a willingness to learn and be corrected. But we're talking about the person who's none of those things and they're just trying to assert themselves over others. That is something the New Testament actually warns us against. For example, 2 Timothy, I'm going to turn there, and you can, you can turn to 2 Timothy 2 if you want to follow. I printed out most of their verses today for the sake of time, but let me read, get there and read this one. Again, the pastorals, Paul knows this is going to happen. That some in the church, they're just going to be contentious, arguers, fighters. And he, he gives them some, some food for thought. Admonitions to, to help shepherd and just sometimes deal with these people. Second Timothy 4, or I'm sorry, 2, 14 through 17. He says, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. He's talking about just worthless debates that are not profitable. Sometimes it's just worthless speech. Sometimes it's, it's just toying with heresy. Like, well, I, I don't know, I can't think of a, an example right now, but just the, this useless discussion that would go on in, in groups. Uh, basically, the, just look at any online Christian forum and all the comments, and you'll know exactly what this means, I guess, right? It's like, that's where just logic and reason and godliness goes to die. The comment section of any blog post, like, just go there, and you'll know what worthless wrangling about words means. You'll find limitless examples. He says, verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Don't just make stuff up. Don't just talk randomly about what you think the Bible means and just these worthless discussions. If you want to talk, you accurately handle the word of truth and then, and then let's talk. Let's have a real you know, Bible study, not just your random speculation. He says, verse 16, in contrast, but avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And he lists some men who fit the bill. Down in verse 23, he says, But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. He says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and so on. Just a needless contentiousness and, and fighting spirit. Debates that are focused just on speculation. 
It's a young man's game. I've been there when I was an early pastor. I had some of my shares of staying late and engaging in fruitless debates with people. I shouldn't have done that. Uh, lack that wisdom and restraint. Lack that love. And it's just spiritual pride. And we don't want to see that taking place. It's just what's the point of, of these contentions? You can't get more serious. We're in Titus 3. Again, another one of the pastoral epistles. He, he warns against this, these people who are contentious not for the sake of, I just want to know what the Bible says. This is a hard one, and I, re- I really disagree, but I'm, I'm here to learn, and we can talk. I've had many just fruitful discussions with people who disagreed on key issues. We left still disagreeing, but we could praise the Lord, and we had a great time of fellowship, even though we disagreed, because it had that humility and love, and we're just contending with Scripture, going back and forth. Like That's fine. That's not what we're talking about here, about being contentious. This is someone who's different. They're, they're just the fighter, typically spawning from speculation. Titus 3, verse 9, he says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. There's a lot of Jewish background to that where they would just take you know, genealogies and find some he, hidden meaning and, and secret meaning in the genealogies. It's like worthless speculation, and then they would argue and debate about it. He says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. There are some who are so hardened in their own speculations and and falsehoods that they want to really divide and and steal sheep and and lead others astray. Like Paul said before, their their talk will spread. that's, That's where it can get a little serious. You have to be on guard. Like he said in 2 Timothy, we are to not engage in these quarrels, not to be quarrelsome, the Lord's bondservant is not to be quarrelsome, but patient and deal graciously with these people. Again, we're trying to shepherd them and reach them too. Very rarely would it get to the point of having to excuse someone from the group for being just overly contentious. If it ever came to that point, really the, the pastors and elders would step in to help assist and help shepherd that person. But before that, you know, as a leader, it's going to be on you to graciously and gently shepherd that person. Help them question their own motives. You know, you can get the, the sense, this person, they're always, you, you know, you're studying the Bible and they always have that jab or that critique, that criticism. And maybe on the side, you can ask them like, why are you asking these questions? And why are you always kind of attacking? It's because you just want to learn. And okay, let's talk about that. And, and let's grow in a spirit of humility. Or are you just trying to assert yourself? It can be a challenge. That's why we're talking about it. But the challenge is to help them identify maybe their own spiritual pride and get them to a place of humility. And that's where, that's where growth takes place, as you know, and not in pride. The contentious person can be a real challenge, but to do nothing about it, you're going to see how big of a challenge it's going to be. Uh, we have to lovingly shepherd such people. And in all of these, the antidote is, is humility plus shepherding. Lord willing, will help people just participate in the church body in a profitable, edifying manner, not in a discouraging manner. And that's kind of a theme to all these personalities. They tend to, one way or another, discourage or tear down the flock. And we want all people to be encouragers and edifiers to the flock. These are all just shepherding challenges, but, well, that's what we're talking about. As a small group leader or future small group leader, uh, you'll be that first line of defense or, or offense to help lovingly and graciously shepherd people through some of these issues. Well, time to finish. One last section. It's a quick one. Small group evaluation. Small group evaluation. 
A final consideration in this study of, you know, how to lead small groups, what to think about, what to consider. And a good place to end is, well, how do you evaluate it? Lord willing, our our small group ministry will you know, get up and running, and over time it, it comes to, to look inward. How are we doing? What are we doing? Why are we doing the things that we are doing? Are, are we doing the right things? Is to evaluate yourself and the group to continually grow. It's a good thing for leaders to frequently evaluate themselves and those under their charge, especially since you know, to the degree that you're a shepherd, you may not be a pastor, but as we studied, if only all of God's people were shepherds and thought like shepherds. And, you know, to the degree you're a shepherd over someone else, we can say you'll be held accountable for that, right? If that's the highest level, being an elder pastor overseer or just a small group leader, to the degree you're a shepherd over someone, you're going to be held accountable for that. And so, hey, you probably want to evaluate yourself, see how you're doing, how you can grow, how the group can grow, just to evaluate the spiritual health and pulse of your small group that's a good thing. You should do that often. And so let me give you a series of, you know, categories to evaluate. Just, it's really just a list of questions we're going to rattle off. Don't try and write them down. There's too many. But just catch the categories and just think about, you know, ways to evaluate yourself and the group in these categories. The first is belonging. First category, belonging. And here you're asking, you know, are the members committed? Do they show that Genuine concern for others. Is their attendance regular? You're going to keep attendance. Is this person like they're, they're missing? Like they're 50-50. Is their attendance regular? And then more than just attendance, do they show real personal investment in the group? Do they belong? Do these people, do they come early and stay late? Do they come late, stay early? Are, are cliques and subgroups forming? Just you're considering what level do they belong? Are they belonging in the right way? Belonging. Secondly, involvement, a little more deeper than belonging. Again, more than just regular attendance, are they involved? Are they engaging in all the activities of the group? You know, Bible study discussion time. Are, are, they, are they like, you know, is their Bible open? Are they taking notes? Are they like they, they want to learn? They're involved? Or are they kind of checking out? They're not really paying attention are they asking good questions? Are they giving answers? Because they're, they're present. Even if they don't know much, that, that doesn't matter. We're all in progress and growing in Christ. But, like, do they care? Prayer time, accountability time. Again, are they engaging in the process? Are they, are they writing down prayer requests or, or not? Showing that they actually care, they want to remember, so that they can pray throughout the week. Or you know, they're planning to forget these by tomorrow. Just evaluating. Are they engaging in accountability? Are they texting or calling the others in the group or not? Are they just showing up or just are really getting involved? And then is their involvement profitable? Are they treating others with respect? They're not dominating the time. They're showing that humility. How profitable is their involvement in the group? And then how can you shepherd them? How can you encourage their growth in godliness and edification? So secondly, involvement. Third, honesty. It's one of the principles we talked before, and it's a, it's a good category for evaluation. Honesty. You know, are, are they playing games? Meaning, you know, especially in that the prayer and accountability time, are they just kind of like putting up a front, putting on a show, going through the motions? Or is genuine humility and honesty forming where they're being open? They're being real about the sins and the temptations they struggle with. 
Are there still taboo topics when it comes to accountability? You know, for example, in any men's group, are the guys still too scared to talk about the elephant in the room of pornography or not? Like, are we going to get past that and just talk about it or, or, or not? Or not that point yet. But things like that. There's little measures of maturity in a group. Are we just like playing games here or are we going to get real with, you know, our struggles? So you want to evaluate. And again, that's not going to happen on day one, meeting one, or even month one or month three. It takes time to build that up. But that's a little checkpoints of honesty. Is the group growing in this a real fellowship, accountability, prayer, all these categories, like are we, are we getting closer or are we just talking about sports and the weather and I'm fine, pray for my sore back, I'm good to go. Like what level are we at? You want to evaluate that you can shepherd accordingly. Fourth category, service. Are they ministering to one another with their gifts? They're not just thinking about themselves. You really measure someone's maturity in their service. Are they showing love and concern for others by meeting needs? When issues come up in the small group, do you see them rally around to help? Like they're, they're excited to bring that person a meal or to give them a ride. They're, they're happy to help. And then beyond the small group, like we said, when it comes to the whole local church, are they involved? Are they serving regular at the church? Are they getting involved in the ministries and activities of the local church? Are they seeing that the small group really has a launching pad for blessing and building up the local church? as well. Fifth, spiritual growth. Kind of obvious, but yeah, you're going to evaluate the spiritual growth of your people. Are they growing into Christ's image? Are they being sanctified? Yeah, they're not going to be perfect like Christ. We know that that's a process in this life. But, you know, in general, did they seem to be winning more battles against sin and temptation or, or not? Are they growing deeper in the knowledge of the Lord and then in the practice of the way of the Lord and the worship of the Lord or still just really on the surface in their discipleship? Do you see a growing witness of the fruit of the spirit in their lives? That's a strong measure. And then do you even see the fruit of evangelism in their lives? That leads really to, I think, a sixth and final place or category of evaluation. And I'll call that reproduction. Reproduction. Are they making other disciples themselves? Are they now engaging in the discipleship process? Because at first, they're probably not even going to think along those terms. They are sheep and they are here to be led. They need you to lead them and to show them what to do and, you know, help them follow Christ. It's the nature of shepherding. They're not even on the wavelength of thinking about how can I shepherd others? How can I help that person become more like Christ? not even on their mind, but as one year goes by, maybe two years go by. Now, are they, are they starting to think more like a shepherd? That is a measure of growth. That's really one of our main goals, right? Are they evangelizing the lost? Are they seeking to make true new disciples? Are they bringing them into the discipleship process? Again, we know that perfect sanctification is not an attainable goal in this life. But regarding this whole process of personal discipleship, I tend to believe that the reproduction of them as a discipleship leader, that's like our most tangible end goal. You know, where we could say like, they've arrived. You get what I'm saying? No one's arrived in the sense of I'm perfectly like Christ. But I would say they've arrived when they could lead their own small group. Like you're ready. You, You don't need to be here per se. It's time for you to lead your own small group 
that, that's really a, a graduation we want to see. And so I evaluate, you know, are these people becoming not just disciples of Christ, but also disciple makers? And we want to encourage that more and more over the years. Yeah, again, that takes time. It could be three years, like the, the 12 disciples. It could be longer. But we want to shepherd them toward that end. The whole goal here is to continue that chain of discipleship like we studied and see them function more like shepherds than sheep to engage in that process and really have a goal a glorious graduation when I could even foresee like your small group just stops meeting. You disband. But it's for a good reason because everyone's ready to take their own little small group. And the church has grown and others are, are in need of that, that you know, first rung of discipleship. And you're going to take five people. You're going to take three people. You're going to take four people. We're going to just totally reproduce this thing. That would be a, a glorious graduation someday. And that's how small group ministries are meant to function and reproduce themselves to effectively minister a large and growing body of, of a local church. So hopefully in time, we can see such discipleship and reproduction taking place even at our church. But these are some of the ways you would evaluate yourself and your small group. Just to make sure you know, you're on track. Easy to get off track in the large church, in a small setting, doesn't matter. You just want to you know, be mindful of that and evaluate. And that's it. That will bring us to our conclusion. Right at seven, perfect timing. That will wrap this whole discussion up. Again, I hope it's proven helpful and profitable just in knowing, first, just what the Bible says about leadership, what it means to be a leader, how to lead, the priorities of leadership. And then hopefully you learn and catch the the spirit of leadership in Scripture, which is, is shepherding, that you yourselves here, all of you, come to think more and more like a shepherd. You might still be like two years off from leading a small group. That's fine, but that you're even just, you're already tilting and starting to think more like a shepherd. How can I love these people? How can I witness Christ more to the lost? How can I edify my neighbor in the church? We've said before, we're that all of God's people shepherds. It would make for just a, a strong and growing and healthy local church. And that's our aspiration just each and every day. So may the Lord bless us as we just pursue him and honor him as under shepherds at whatever level. Then we finish this off in a, another word of prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Our gracious Father in heaven, we, we really praise you for this time. It has been encouraging and profitable. Anytime we study your, your word, whether it's a, a single verse or what, what your Bible says about any given topic, like leadership, it's going to be profitable. It will encourage us and instruct us. We need that to know what it means to be a leader of your people. You didn't have to, but in your will and your plan, you've appointed to, that, that your church would be led by shepherds. From the top, the elder pastor overseer, but even down to just the lay person. You, you want your people to, to grow and be shepherds of others, disciple makers of others. And I pray you convict us to rise to that task. Wherever we're at, that we, we just think more along these lines. How can we help these people run the race not give up. Become more like Christ. Grow in worship and, and all these things. Help us. Bless this church as we grow. And uh, may mo- leaders multiply. May, may a shepherding spirit multiply. That's going to be to your glory. It's going to be our benefit and to the witness of the lost as well. Uh, so we ask for your help in these things. We, we praise your name for all that we've learned. And now may we just put this more into practice. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.